0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Quality. And today's podcast, we're going to explore quality and emergency care, going back to our topic of substance use disorders as part of the Emergency Quality Network SUD initiative. Today, we've got two great guests. I have Scott Weider joining us again from Brigham and Women's Hospital, who is co-lead of the Equal SUD initiative and a national expert in treating opioid use disorder and other substance use disorders. And as our special guest, we've got Eric Anderson joining us as the Director of Population Health and the Associate Director of the Bridge Program at Highland Hospital in Oakland, California. And today we're talking about alcohol use disorder. We're not gonna talk about withdrawal, which is something I think many emergency physicians have felt comfortable with or used to treating, but instead we're gonna talk about treating cravings and preventing relapse, things that we don't often talk about in emergency medicine or in the emergency department, but are real opportunities for us to improve the quality of emergency care. I'm going to kick it off thinking about a paper, Eric, I just read of yours around the social context of alcohol use disorder in the emergency medicine. When I read it, what I first thought about was that as an ER doc, when I walk into a shift, I always expect going into a shift that I'm going to see a patient that has acute alcohol intoxication. I always expect that I'm going to treat somebody with an alcohol use disorder. On the other hand, I never walk away from a shift or think about my work as an emergency physician is that being the patient where I had the biggest impact or that being the patient that I cared for, that being the patient whose life I saved. And I think a lot of that is because of how we socially think about our role in emergency medicine, what we think our job as ER docs is, and maybe some stigma around alcohol use. You know, tell us more about that paper and sort of how you're thinking about your role as an ER doc and how we think about alcohol and ED. Yeah, I mean, I think you
1: kind of got to why this is an interesting and important topic, right? It's all the time in the ED, we're seeing this patient really frequently, and we don't always think that we have a lot to offer to them, which is a problem, right, for the patients, but also probably for providers. We have some burnout around that maybe or frustration, and I think that when we started as emergency physicians starting to treat opioid use disorder more often, it was like, oh my gosh, why are we not treating more alcohol use disorder, right? We treat withdrawal all the time. Maybe we look for complications from intoxication really frequently, like we're really good at that, but then we stop. And I think that this frame has shifted to thinking more about how can we help treat this patient that we see all the time, that maybe previously we didn't feel like we had a lot to offer. And so when we did this paper, we wanted to sort of understand the burden of the disease and maybe what some interventions could look like. You know, that's that's not to say that there hasn't been a ton of research in emergency medicine about unhealthy alcohol use or risky drinking for that matter. But, you know, now we're talking about medications for substance use disorder treatment and how to integrate those into care. And this is, you know, in some ways an obvious next step, given how frequently this presents in
2: our hospitals and emergency departments. Eric, the, the research is very interesting, and I was surprised. I mean, you're a, you're a safety net hospital, and a lot of us do work in safety net hospitals, but the numbers were pretty staggering. I think it was something like 39 or 40% of all patients that you surveyed had unhealthy alcohol use. Was that correct? Yeah, yeah, it was just about 40% had unhealthy alcohol
1: use. So this is actually pretty consistent across a couple of different emergency departments who have done similar types of work. I mean, we used some screening questions, and other studies might have used different variations on those, but... I mean, the burden's high everywhere, right? Like you don't have to work in a safety net hospital to see this being a common occurrence in your emergency
0: department. And part of is that there's a lot of phenotypes of alcohol use. It's not just, I think, you know, most yard acts probably go straight in their head to this mental image of a patient who may be suffering housing insecurities, homeless, who may also have a co-occurring mental health condition, depression, schizophrenia, and alcohol use disorder. But alcohol use disorder probably comes in a, lot of different flavors, there's many different kinds of people out there who are struggling. And what do we know about that?
1: That's a great point. I mean, we see patients who have chronic, like moderate to severe alcohol use disorder, and those patients might, you know, go on to develop cirrhosis, or they're coming in really frequently, and they're severely impaired by drinking every day, a lot, right? Like, that's one thing we think about. But maybe what happens just as frequently for us clinicians is that we see patients with like what we consider unhealthy alcohol use or risky drinking, where someone just might drink a lot, get in a car accident, find themselves in some really unsafe situation, and have trauma. And maybe that's why they're coming to the hospital. So we, we have a sense of why patients with alcohol use disorder die, uh, trauma being one of them. So we are good at that. That's this, this common overlap in the emergency department. Uh, complications from chronic alcohol use. So that would be sort of, you know, decompensated uh, cirrhosis or GI bleeds. We see this a lot too. Um, and the other one is just exacerbations of chronic disease. So I think all of these things kind of come into our clinical practice in a way that we're always addressing, but maybe not getting at the root cause, which is trying to do something for the underlying alcohol use disorder and the range of that. So I, I do think hopefully we'll talk about this, but there are some things that we can do for patients with psychosocial interventions and medications for people who have unhealthy alcohol use or mild alcohol use disorder, all the way up to moderate and
2: severe alcohol use disorder. It's very interesting. And you know this is a little bit of a Pandora's box, but it kind of, kind of gets into the quality aspect which is, which is around a screening. Um, and as mentioned, I say it's a Pandora's box because already our triage nurses are asked to to screen for so many conditions, whether it be Ebola or COVID or firearms or depression, et cetera. Um, and I think that the the current substance use screening is sometimes distilled down into use alcohol, drugs, or tobacco, right? Like yeah. just a quick yeah. a quick screen. So, but in your in your study, you actually identified a lot of patients just by asking a single item screening question about unhealthy alcohol use. Is that something that you'd advocate that we should be doing, or do you think we already have enough difficulty with the patients we've already identified? Great question.
1: I think that the reality for most practice settings is that screening is not going to be something that's feasible to integrate very often, right? Um, and I think that most patients who have a severe disease, whether that's this binge drinking pattern or severe AUD those patients are going to be just easy recognizable to us, right? This is a patient that we're treating for withdrawal or that comes in intoxicated and got assaulted. So I think that honestly, this isn't like something that we need to be like digging around for. That's just how common it is. And I would just start there. At that level one trauma centers across the country, there's going to be screening that's mandatory as part of level one certification for a lot of places. So I think maybe many listeners will work at trauma centers, but maybe didn't know that that screening was already taking place. So if you wanted to take that next step and think about screening, then it's it may or may not already be there at some of your institutions.
0: Uh, so what's the one question, guys? Like, you know, I, As I hear this, I feel like this should be easy. I know I can't ask the nurses to take on yet another sort of screening role. In fact, screening is probably a four-letter word in emergency medicine. And so often I think about this as, it's really about diagnosis and from what i hear you tell me eric you know a lot of the patients i'm seeing with the c h f exacerbation or asthma exacerbation that i think of as a heart problem or lung problem is actually tied right in to being their alcohol use disorder and so if i only get to ask that patient one question in that quick eval what am i what am i going to use
1: yeah great question so the any of these screening questions then lead you to do more assessment right but the the single item screener that you could use and this is you know, based The TAPS-1, this is what we use in this paper, is for, for men, you would say, how many times in the past month have you had more than five drinks? And for women, that would be four drinks. And if the answer is anything other than never, then you proceed to do some more assessments about that. I mean, these are just based on healthy drinking recommendations and limits from these large organizations, right? And I think that it's nice because you'll capture folks who will be coming into the hospital with unhealthy alcohol use that would be like binge drinking, but maybe they don't drink every day and they're not severely impaired socially or with their job. Um, but then you'll also catch those folks too. So that that's a kind of a nice opening question that you could ask if you were going to embark on some screening or just like integrate that
2: into your practice. I really like that. And it, it kind of resonates with um, a screener that I heard was being done at University of Pennsylvania. We had Kit Delgado come to speak to us in the past too, which is just in the past week, have you used any illicit opioids or heroin or fentanyl? And it's just yeah. a very, very brief last week. We're not asking last month or last year. It's just the lowest hanging fruit for something that that we can intervene on. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it's so important that we start to screen for this. If, particularly, we've learned this from opioid use disorder. I think that a lot of us didn't believe in screening because you identified the problem, but then you didn't know what to do with it. Now we've got interventions. We have buprenorphine and we have bridge clinics and we have substance use navigators, which we'll talk about. But I want to transition a little bit into to alcohol about what we can actually do about it. And I wonder if you can talk just a little bit about some of the craving medications that are out there and particularly focus on naltrexone, which has been the focus of some of your work.
1: Yeah. So for treat, if you want, if we want to start talking about treating alcohol use disorder. Uh, we're going to talk about two main things, and that would be some type of psychosocial intervention, and that can be SBIRT. There's a couple other nice models out there that we can talk about, too. But this, I mean, honestly, it's just like talking to the patient, asking genuine questions about people's use and relating it back to why they're there. But then medicines, right? So this is where this whole concept got shifted in emergency medicine. We're going to use pharmacotherapy for substance use disorder treatment. And so for alcohol, naltrexone is a really easy one. It fits really well into, I think, a lot of the patients' lives that we're seeing because there's some options. There's an oral medication that can be taken once daily, and there's a monthly injection that you could take. There's a list of other medications, right? Like there's two, two other FDA-approved ones, acamprosate and disulfiram, which, to be honest, I think are a little bit trickier to integrate into emergency medicine practice. And then some off-label ones, including gabapentin, which I use all the time, because I think that sits nicely into this buprenorphine model. But I do think naltrexone is first line. It's FDA approved. It's got a nice track record of, uh, you know, how well it works in outside of EDs realistically. And now we're getting to learn more about it and when we integrate it into the practice and in the emergency department.
0: Brass tacks here, guys. I love it. I read about the stuff. I learn about it from you all but one of the things I find hardest as an ER doc is prescribing something for the first time, right? It's really easy in my practice to keep doing stuff that I did maybe for the first time as a resident, because you're safe, you've got an attending behind you everything else. But now as an attending, when I'm out and I'm practicing and I'm seeing somebody, it's that first prescription is the hardest one because you're doing something that feels completely foreign. You feel like you're doing it alone. How do you help people get over that hump? And is there a way to make this sort of simple enough that treating somebody uh, for those cravings with naltrexone, you know, is no different than giving somebody some pain medication or an antihypertensive or something else?
1: Well, I think it helps to step back and think about what naltrexone does, right? Naltrexone is an opioid antagonist, right? Like it, it's it's a perfectly safe medication We're dispensing naloxone all the time. Um, you know, works for alcohol use because it interrupts these endogenous opioids and sort of the dopaminergic pleasure pleasure pathways, right, when you when you're drinking. And you don't have to have detoxed from alcohol before you start it. So it also opens a door to say, okay, like this is an opioid antagonist, like there shouldn't really be any problems here. Naloxone's available over the counter, right? Um and you don't have to have detox. So if a patient's like ready to go, but maybe they still have some alcohol in their system, administer the first dose in the ED. You see this patient tolerate this medication without any problems. And then that also can help you prescribe it. Uh, we, We talk a lot about really trying to get folks to do that first dose in the ED for buprenorphine. And I think that we can think about it similarly for naltrexone because of its safety profile. And I think this sort of like, sneaky familiarity, right? We're using naloxone all the time. We're giving out naloxone.
2: It's basically the same thing, except it's a pill. Can you describe some of the phenotypes of patients that you're seeing that you'd, you'd prescribe this to? Is this someone that, that comes in intoxicated and we allow, allow them to sober. And then we'd of course like them to get outpatient help if possible. Maybe they're not ready and mm-hmm. we would give it to them. Or is this someone that you're identifying through your screen that comes in with another, another issue, and then you're offering it to them? What, what situations are you using it? Most of the time, I think it's going to be in these patients who very obviously have a
1: problem with alcohol, whether that's risky drinking or binge drinking pattern or clearly have moderate severe alcohol use disorder. And when they are, if they present intoxicated, then when they are able to have a conversation about, you know, the context of that visit and their alcohol use, that's a time to offer medications. And this is a good first line one to offer. When I talk about like which one for a patient, so oral or the injectable, which we have in our ED, then it comes down to personal preference. There's not a whole lot of evidence. Actually, I don't think there's any studies that directly compare PO versus XR and naltrexone. There's some, I think in process right now, but we don't know which one's better. And realistically, XR is not gonna be available a lot of places too. But sometimes I'll dig in about different goals for patients. If a patient doesn't want to stop drinking, they want to reduce their drinking, A, naltrexone's perfect. That's what naltrexone has been shown to do. It's been shown to reduce your drinking to a healthier level, a less harmful level. Uh, it hasn't actually been shown to be associated with abstinence. So this is like the perfect person for naltrexone. But you can also take it in a few different ways. So if you don't want to take it every day, a person's like, you know, I only drink on Saturdays, but when I drink, I drink a lot like that person's actually probably a reasonable person to start naltrexone for. They don't meet criteria for moderate to severe AUD, but there's been some really interesting recent papers about treating patients with less severe alcohol use disorder with on-demand naltrexone. So this is something that patients told me about when I have an addiction medicine clinic. They're like, you know, I take naltrexone if I know I'm going to drink, so I'll drink less. I'm like, oh, that's interesting, you know? And then a paper came out at San Francisco, recently, in the past six months, talking about on-demand naltrexone. And it's such a great idea. I think when people are having these patterns of alcohol use that just get out of control on Saturdays, right? Like that's some time where you could take your PO naltrexone. So I do talk to patients about that as well. Um, Realistically, I think most of the patients we're talking to probably have more severe disease. And then it's about, do you want to take an injection once a month, or do you want to use uh, an oral medication once a day? And, you know, it's worth pausing just for a second to note that because it's an opioid antagonist, you have to be positive that that person doesn't use opioids or else you're going to have precipitated withdrawal, which we've all seen is not very fun. Um, And then if you have decompensated cirrhosis or really bad transaminitis, it's probably not a good idea to use
0: naltrexone either. One of the things I think about when we do prescribing is, you know, I'm I'm sure there's a bunch of yard acts out there that will say, well, it's chronic disease, not an acute condition, But there's a lot of chronic diseases for which we feel comfortable giving people a prescription for a DD discharge. I think hypertension is one where a lot of docs feel comfortable. They have a few agents they willing to give somebody a seven days or 30 days of an antihypertensive. Sometimes I know a lot of people give people metformin for diabetes. And none of these drugs are perfect, right? Like we're not expecting to give somebody a single prescription that is immediately life and death. And so when I talk to patients, you know, I'll give asthma patients a steroid inhaler sometimes. We give them that on our pathway. I tell them, This isn't going to save your life, but it does mean if you use this inhaler, you're two or three times less likely to end up back in the ED, and nobody really wants to be in the ED with their asthma. Um, Or same thing, we give a patient with high blood pressure and antihypertensive, I say, I don't know that this doesn't mean you're never going to have a heart attack or stroke, but it is way less likely. If you take this medicine and you get on a medication, you take it every day. When you give a patient with an alcohol use disorder, say, naltrexone or something else, how do we talk to them? about what the outcome is. How do you manage expectations and what are we saying to them on the way out the door when you write them that new prescription that makes them wanna go pick it up and take it, but it's also honest?
1: Well, I think part of it is this conversation before where all this great um, research had happened in the past you know, 10 or 20 years is about having these conversations with patients. Um, I think a lot of us know how to talk to patients about their substance use because of this workaround, SBIRT, and other things in the ED. Um, so when we're talking about that, then it, it's not just like, hey, like, go make an appointment somewhere, or it's not like, hey, I'm glad we had this great conversation about you're recognizing that your alcohol use contributed to your ED visit, and like, here's a list of clinics. It's actually, this is, is a big deal. You know, we're going to actually start you on a medication right now, and here's your first dose. Um, I think that sets up a different expectation about it, that this is not only something that we care about, but it's a treatable disease. Right. And it's remarkably undertreated for for what it's worth. But it's also something that, you know, we can do. And so I talk to people about framing it that way. And you know, we're lucky to have a low threshold bridge clinic. So it's like come to clinic tomorrow. You know, like that's the bet. We want to get these patients into clinic, of course, and outpatient addiction treatment. Um, and then there's other things right about how we can how a patient could use it. So I talked about on-demand naltrexone. I talked about, oh gosh, the pharmacy is tough for me. And, you know, I really feel motivated now, but I'm worried about taking a daily medication. It's like, oh, let's do extended release naltrexone. Maybe that's the better fit for you. Um, So I do think that these conversations can be relatively brief. They can be really productive. And I also think they can help us sort of feel like, you know, we're doing something for uh, alcohol use disorder. Whenever I talk to different providers in our health system or in other ones, it's, it's just like a lot. there is almost like a sense of relief that there's something that we can do because this is such a big deal. And I think the reality of emergency medicine is that, like you said, we're treating a lot of chronic diseases, or at least sort of like setting people up to have um, started medications and get to care. And it's just, it's part of our practice. And this is a disease that we haven't been treating. It's not well treated outside of, in anywhere, ambulatory or inpatient uh, arenas. Um, And so I think it sort of sets up a a nicer approach to a really, really common problem.
2: I really appreciate that point. And especially, I, I actually believe it's more of a wellness issue for a lot of best practicing in emergency medicine, because I think there's a lot of stigma against the patient population with substance use disorder because we felt so helpless, right? I mean, how many patients have you seen that came in intoxicated and we give them the detox list that we know is, is just, you know, useless and then, and they leave and they just come right back. And I feel like we we finally are learning how to use some of these tools that would prevent someone from, from needing to come into the ED in the first place and, and improve their life and improve their health. So it's, it's, it's empowering. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing. I really did want to do a deeper dive into the IM or extended release naltrexone. So I I understand oral naltrexone is pretty cheap, but the IM is really expensive. Then there are these these issues about you can't use other opioids. And so if someone has an injury down the road or needs surgery down the road, then it might be harder to control their pain. How do you handle these conversations and and the cost issue with patients when you're offering it?
1: Um. That's a great question. I mean, that's the biggest, that's like the elephant in the room with extended release naltrexone, right? So we, we, you can get naltrexone in your hospital, like the drug company will give it to you for free, which is a complex issue with ethical problems that are totally reasonable to talk about. And that's how, that's how we got it. Like we're not getting paid by them or anything, but like they give it to our hospital for free to use in the ED and in, um, in the inpatient setting. So, you know, like, that's not for every institution, but that's how we have it available for our patients. The next step, getting to clinic, uh, extend release naltrexone is covered by Medi-Cal and you know we're a we have like five percent privately insured patients, and so because it's covered by public insurance plans here, we're like all set. So the, those next steps are easy, um, but that's you know it is trickier, right? And so you want to know: should we implement this? Is it cost-effective, and is it better than oral medications? And you know, I think my answer to that is that every patient is going to be different. Some are better fits for these medications than others. Uh, you know, oral versus extended release. Um, and there's some data suggesting that these sort of long-acting injectable, or there's, in, I think in Australia they have naltrexone implants or rods or, that you can use. And there's a couple studies suggesting that probably more cost effective. I mean, it makes sense to me too, right? You're treating someone's alcohol of for a month. You're setting them up to have more success drinking less or stopping drinking. So having a medication for a month is a great idea for many different reasons. Uh, whether or not logistically that's really feasible to implement right away in your ED is a different story, but these injectables are interesting, right? We're talking about injectable buprenorphine for opioid use disorder from the ED, and these are pretty exciting interventions that we're going to learn a lot more about, I think, in the next few years as we, you know, do more studies about these types of
0: interventions. What do the numbers sort of look like in terms of these long-duration formations? The reason I say it is I can imagine people getting caught in this Catch-22, which is you already believe that cravings and are really powerful and that alcohol use disorder is a severe disease and the more and more that you believe that the more and more afraid you are that you know this one long acting drug is not going to be enough or that one of these other considerations is going to to come up they're going to get into a car accident there's going to be some contraindication maybe not right now this minute the ed but maybe a week from now We're, we're very good in emergency medicine about sort of thinking about the rare but terrible outcome. And sometimes that's also does us a disservice because we overestimate some of these potential harms or adverse effects. And then we let that convince us that maybe we shouldn't do something. Um, is that the case here? Like, should we be sort of like, should we actually be much more reassured and more comfortable?
1: I think we should, um, The I get it, right? Like you're gonna say, I'm gonna block your opioid receptors for a month, you know, good luck if you have, break your leg or something like that. Um, I mean, we've been doing this for for a while now, and it, it just, it hasn't come up that often. And when it does, our addiction team gets involved and we encourage providers to use other types of multimodal analgesia, which is something that I think a lot of emergency physicians feel really, really skilled with. There's non-opioid medications. And and the reality is you can overcome this, right? Like you can, you just need to use higher Amounts of opioids. You have to use fentanyl or hydromorphone with higher doses than normal and you titrate appropriately. And you can you can break through this and people can have pain control. It's not something I would do if someone's got a planned surgery next week. I'd probably say take the oral medication for a week. And that comes up more often, I think, in clinic for me than it does in the ED, because you could ask that question if you wanted to, or oftentimes you'll know this. Like if someone breaks their femur from alcohol use disorder, something related to that, like that's probably not the person to use an extended release option for. Um, but you know, the reality is, I think that it's something that we shouldn't shy away from. It's not like you know you're going to be you have untreatable pain, uh, you know, forever and ever if you if you get this shot. So um, I, I do think it's something that we probably should not shy away from, and I think. Um, you know, and if you are worried, then the oral medication does work. And you can obviously go on to that one too.
2: Absolutely. Um, and so I want to transition a bit over to the substance use navigators. And I actually just want to tie in your article. Actually, you have know, a couple of articles, but particularly the one that was uh, about naltrexone that you gave in the ED. And just, it was it was a small sample size, from but it was pretty interesting. I think that the patients that you gave naltrexone to Something like 15% of them followed up. It was more with the injectables. But then part of the follow-up is that they were able to get into follow-up. And so I'm wondering if you can talk about the logistics there, how you made that happen, uh, recommendations for hospitals that aren't currently doing this.
1: Yeah, the the follow-up that we had, I think, was based on our work treating opioid use disorder in the ED. So a lot of hospitals are building these pathways, building these treatment protocols but also where do you go after this and you know a lot of some places might only take patients with opioid use disorder but it's kind of silly right like there's there's so many other use disorders happening in the ED and most clinics who are doing outpatient addiction treatment will treat any use disorder of course so the, i think if those pathways exist you leverage those same um, same workflows and you get people on medication for a use disorder and into clinic for a use disorder. So I wouldn't shy away from it if you're already doing some of this work. Um, our problem has this team of substance use navigators, we call them Suns, S-U-N, and they're an amazing group of people and they, they essentially do a lot of this work for us where they can come in and talk to patients about their use and uh, do some harm reduction counseling, Etc this was really more developed in our in our next, our second paper that was a year later about um, substance use navigation specifically but our, our pathways are are I feel lucky about it, right like we have a low threshold clinic in the hospital. you can go Monday through Friday walk-ins all the time there's like no cap. it's a busy clinic um, and I wish that everywhere had that. I understand that that that's not available every place. but I do think that probably, most EDs are, have some sense of where they can refer patients for a substance use disorder. So I don't think we should let it get in the way if all we have is, pr- you know, go to this clinic and, and I hope that it works out. Like, that's okay. You're still treating that patient's use disorder for however long you decided to prescribe a medication for, and that's great. You know, naltrexone is the only AUD medication that's been shown to work in just an office-based setting as opposed to a outpatient, you know, intensive outpatient program or addiction treatment program. So it's a, that's another reason why it's a nice approach to use for somebody. You, you can do this brief counseling with naltrexone, it can still be effective. So I don't think we should let it get into the way of, of treatment, but uh, it's obviously so much better when you have available, especially low threshold treatment options to get into clinic after you leave the ED.
0: You know, I get that culturally these low threshold clinics may seem like they're really hard to get, right? The idea of going to my hospital and being like, hey, build a clinic, it's going to be open appointment, show up when you can, challenging population, we'll make it work. I see why that's hard, but I think there's a little thread, a little lesson in there that you're teaching us, which is, I'm guessing what you're not telling people at ED discharges come Wednesday at 3 p.m. And I think sometimes these highly prescriptive follow-up expectations that we have, are those are sort of... Those are almost physician-centric. Like we want to be able to tell a patient, come to this place at three o'clock with this doctor. And if I don't have that, then I worry that follow-up won't happen. But it's almost so prescriptive when you talk to patients, that's what makes follow-up hard versus you're probably letting them just sort of loosely come back when it works for you in your life. Here's the place we're going to take care of you. And I almost feel like that sometimes might work better.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, it helps that uh, our clinic was started by an ER doc, right? Andrew Herring started our clinic. And that's that ethos is just there. And so we get it. We want to be able to say you can come whenever. And that's probably the most part, important part. But also like providers like to have specific appointment date and time sometimes. So we just tell people like make it up. Like, say you want ask the patient when they want to come. They want to come Tuesday at three, tell them Tuesday at three. So like either one of those approaches is fine. And they should just be like tailored to Whatever works for that provider and that and that patient. But yeah, it really helps to be able to say Monday through Friday, doors are open, you miss your appointment, come the next day. It's totally
2: fine. Love that idea. That's a great, a great idea. But um it, it feels like now trexone, it just feels different to me than buprenorphine. And with buprenorphine, there's a lot of stigma around it. There's the residual effect of the X waiver, which is fortunately now gone. It still is a controlled substance. So I think that there's a lot of uncertainty around that. But naltrexone, it doesn't have any of that burden. And so if what would you recommend for physicians who are listening who don't yet have a bridge clinic, don't yet have substance use navigators, don't have anything in place, but do have a patient population that's coming in intoxicated? Should they just get started? How should they get started? How many days of naltrexone would you recommend they prescribe? Like what, what would you recommend for them?
1: I think in that setting, you're probably only going to have oral naltrexone available. So let's, we'll just talk about that one. That's a little takes away the XR option. Um, but I, I think that, you know, at no one practices in this like isolated bubble where they have no idea how to get someone somewhere. And, and this can be treated in primary care, right? Like it's not always easy to get there, but you don't have to have a dedicated program that someone goes to. So if someone comes in intoxicated and, you know, I understand, like we, I get, it, it's not always clear where people can go for care, but I do think this is a medication and a disease that can be treated with less structure than we think has to happen, right? The the, the comparison or like the other option is doing nothing, right? And this is a severe disease. It's super common. Like we need to do something. So I would say, you know, refer someone on along a normal pathway for follow-up and prescribe them. Two weeks of 50 milligrams daily of oral naltrexone. I prescribe longer, but like, you know, two weeks just seems pretty darn reasonable to me.
0: That's a question because I think, you know, this comes up all the time. Um, we never have doubt that we could send a patient with diabetes or hypertension or even heart failure to a follow up with primary care because we feel very comfortable. They feel very comfortable in to take care of all those patients. As ER docs, we get rubbed the wrong way when people don't recognize what we can do and sort of the breadth of our practice around a variety of things, right? Like we sort of bristle if somebody thinks they have to see a cardiologist for chest pain. No, we take care of chest pain. What's your experience been? Like are the primary care docs out there? Like, is this sort of bread and butter common care for them? Are we sort of overly worrying about this whole somebody needs an addiction specialist when it comes to alcohol use disorder? And can we just sort of like, yeah, you know, just assume that the primary care docs are ready to go
1: Oh, yeah. I mean, I, I, I think that is very reasonable to say that this person should be on on naltrexone and follow up in primary care completely. And I say that my my wife's a primary care doctor, an addiction doctor. she fully support that statement. But it, very, very much capable of doing this in pretty much any practice setting.
2: And I also wanted to ask, could you mentioned it before, too, it's just uh, a lot of confusion around this drug is gabapentin. Are you using it in this, in this situation? How are you using it? What's your experience been with it? I'm a big fan. Um, I, I use it in
1: the BUP model. So buprenorphine treats withdrawal and opioid use disorder. So gabapentin at specific doses has been studied to be effective in ambulatory settings for alcohol withdrawal, right? And, and then it also has been studied for alcohol use disorder. And and in each of those situations, so if you're using gabapentin for withdrawal, it's a a taper. But if you're using it for AUD, person's detox already, it's a ramp. So I just skip the ramp. And I think it's very effective, probably more effective than a lot of literature suggests, even though it's reasonable, I would say. Um, And it's also just a nice way to integrate AUD treatment into something that we treat really commonly, which is alcohol withdrawal syndrome. Um, So I'm using typical doses between 600 and 800 milligrams PO three times a day. And I start it for, I give it to people for two weeks and I tell them to come see me in clinic. Um, And I don't have a ramp and I don't have a taper. Uh, There's a lot of folks doing this in different settings, different EDs. Um, Street medicine teams in LA are doing 1200 TID off the bat, which I'll do for uh, a subset of patients who are drinking a lot more. Um, There are situations where I think we need to make sure that we're probably using something else for withdrawal. I know there's a whole podcast about this already, um, but I, I think gabapentin fits nicely into this butte paradigm that I think a lot of us are embracing.
0: So, you know, it's funny as I'm sort of hearing about this from experts like you, the more I think about what I want to do in my practice for alcohol sort of the kind of pathways I want to develop for my EDs and my docs to implement is really simple stuff. It's like, Here's sort of the recommended prescription on our discharge list for a Naltrexone prescription for seven or fourteen or thirty days, and here's the sort of recommended Gabapentin prescription. And you know we can we hardwire this stuff in for thirty or forty other drugs right now on our discharge screen in the EHR. It's pretty easy to do it for these two, um, and then you give people almost that sort of go-to uh, discharge prescription the same way you do an EpiPen uh, for anaphylaxis. And I I think that's where we can sort of use quality improvement methods to simplify, standardize, uh, formalize care in a way that we can use QI to sort of improve this and not just count on people sort of individually having goodwill, because I think that's hard. Um, And it's hard to sort of have big impact when we do it that way.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I agree. And I I think that this combination of medications, we spend most time talking about naltrexone, but those two are most patients I see are eligible for those two medications. They they work well. You know, people need to stop drinking safely too, so we do have to treat withdrawal appropriately, and I think gabapentin does it uh, well a majority of the time. So I think that that combination is usually what I think of for my practice and what I talk to, you know, residents and other folks about as being, you know, that's sort of the default for discharging a patient with alcohol use disorder. And Maybe they can't take naltrexone for some reason, or maybe they can't take gabapentin for some reason, but that I think is the starting point um, as opposed to, you know, benzo taper or, or, not, or nothing.
0: So, you know, on quality, we always close out every podcast by giving you the last word. And uh, you've got hundreds of DEDs, thousands of emergency clinicians who are part of the Equal Substance Use Disorder Initiative. And so I'm going to let you get on your soapbox and tell them all one thing. What is it?
1: I would say that, hospitals and health systems care about this right like this is a big deal and you can work outside of your departments to engage folks to to support you to do this work so the reason that we got our substance use navigators funded is because we worked with our local quality programs and we engaged in these statewide incentive programs that brought the hospital in money and then we said hey like look at this this is a good service every single person cares about this problem that's the reality. Like they just do at these ho- at hospitals, especially alcohol and inpatients, right? Like it's such a huge deal. So like leverage that, become like own it. We are good at this, become an expert and then work with these other groups to say, like, hey, we're gonna do something big here. And I think you'll feel really supported, um, both professionally. I think you'll be supported by your institutions financially. And I think it will be a- an important intervention for our patients.
0: Thank you. That was awesome. Yeah. We always try to close every one of these episodes with a few quality improvement lessons, and I'm thinking back on our conversation today, and a few things stick out. The first is I think we need to remember that alcohol use disorder, unhealthy drinking, and ED, comes in a bunch of different ways. There's many different kinds of patients we can benefit, and so we got to build up quality improvement processes that are sort of flexible uh, to different kinds of needs. The second I think is we got to make treatment available. We know how to do this for a bunch of other diseases. We got to put these meds on our discharge screens. We got to come up with simple pathways that we can implement into ED, uh, ED processes. And then the third thing is, I think we need to actually not run away from the word navigation and think that this is about a complicated process or system like we have for opioid use disorder out there um, and rely on our primary care colleagues our outpatient colleagues. Just get somebody started on some meds for the uh, cravings and for alcohol use disorder and we'll get them a little bit closer to being in treatment and a little bit closer to better outcomes. And I think that's, what, that's really where emergency care is gonna have a big impact on communities and uh, how we think about quality of people's total health. So thank you all. Awesome episode. And now tune back in next time.